What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner. And today I had a special guest on the show who you guys are going to love. I had Dr. Sean Pastuch, who was a fellow Maryland Terrapin. I had no idea we actually overlapped in undergrad. We just discovered this on the on the conversation. But uh, more than that, Dr. Sean Pastuch brought a concept to the table that I actually referenced in this show before, and we got to dig in a little bit more in depth about it. And it is a concept that he coined as practical fitness. And the first time I heard it, I thought it was brilliant. What does it mean to be practically fit, like practically fit for life, to be able to do life things and not worrying about, can I squat three times my body weight or can I deadlift 600 pounds? And those are all cool if you are competing and you want to accomplish those goals, have at it. But what I think is a little bit more impactful is understanding this concept of practical fitness. So we talked all about that. If you enjoyed the episode, we would love to hear about it. We would love for you to share and spread the word. You can tag me on Instagram at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. You can tag Sean at Dr. Sean Pastuch. And I have an announcement because every week you leave a five-star rating and review, you get entered to win some free supplements from one of our sponsors, either Organifi or Cured, or you can pick something from our own pop line. It's really simple to enter. You go to the Apple Podcast app, you pull it up on your phone, you go to the search button, even if you already follow the show. You search Mind Over Macros, you click on the thumbnail, you scroll all the way down until you see the reviews. We are closing in on five hundred reviews. And I cannot thank you enough for that. Once you leave a five-star rating and review, you are automatically entered to win that week. So we don't get that many entries each week. The odds of winning are pretty high. This week, the winner is BK3113. BK3113. Thank you so much for the review. The review says, I've learned so much. I'm so glad that this podcast was suggested for me. I've learned so many things and now have so many tools for my healthy living toolbox. Thanks. Thank you. And you can email me. The email address is mike at peakoptimizationperformance.com. And I'll get you hooked up with some supplements, a supplement of your choice. You get to pick, uh, you email me, I'll reply with some options, and then we'll get you all squared away. If you want to enter for this coming week, Again, leave a five-star rating and review, and you will automatically be entered. Now, I also need you to follow and subscribe to the show. That is apparently really important to helping the show, the show reach a new audience and continue to grow and help more people by you doing your job. You help others. And your job is very simple. It's just to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You should be able to su subscribe or follow, which means that you just get automatically notified when new episodes release. And apparently that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast and Spotify algorithm. I don't know. I'm just doing what I'm told to help reach it so that we can reach more people. That's it. If you can follow through on that, it would be amazing. And now enjoy the episode. All right, everybody. I'm joined today by a very special guest on the show. I have Dr. Sean Pastuch joining me. He is the owner of Active Life RX and also a friend of a friend. We were introduced to my good friend, Christy Campbell, who has been a regular on this show. And Christy has not yet missed in her introduction. So you have a, you have a lot to live up to, but thanks for joining the show. It's my pleasure. And I, I fully intend to live up to whatever lie Christy told you about how great I am. Absolutely. Uh, so I always like to start with uh, the the origin story of how you got into this industry in the first place, how Active Life came to be, and just catch us up on the journey from where it all began to to where we are now. My real my my real start in the fitness industry was in 2004 in the weight room at University of Maryland, and my first personal training job was in 2005 at a you know, a family owned gym where I learned how to do everything wrong. I mean, like I, they didn't teach me the wrong things. They showed me the wrong things. You know, I sold the bag of steroids okay. from behind the front desk to a member unknowingly. The guy just came with 700 plus dollars, said there's a gym bag for me. I'm like, uh, that's when I quit. But, you know, I learned in that place how to reline selectorized machines, how to clean the mirrors. You use newspaper, not a towel. 
Newspapers only residue and the black ink actually makes it shine better. All, all that little stuff I learned how to do there. Then I moved to Equinox and learned the business side of big box fitness and personal training. And to give you the long story short, um, time after time, I felt uninspired by what I was able to do for my clients and for what I was experiencing in the culture of the places where I was working. <clears throat> so left Equinox became a chiropractor, left chiropractic effectively to build a new kind of treatment paradigm, uh, ran gyms simultaneously with my clinic. And then everything kind of started to snowball in a positive way when I had patients who were flying in from around the world for evaluation and treatment at my clinic and then ongoing support when they would go home. Right. So obviously you could no longer treat somebody the way a chiropractor would if your patients are flying into town for three days and then leaving for the rest of their lives. So that's when it started to become a uh, program design thing where I'd write exercise program design for clients that was supportive of the findings that we had on site. Ultimately, that led to Olympians flying out, professional baseball players, CrossFit Games athletes, CrossFit Games champions, and personal trainers and coaches started reaching out saying, hey, how come my clients my client's friend, whatever have you, are working with you. Started teaching coaches. Then gym owners started saying, these coaches are the only ones on my staff who are making money and doing meaningful work. How do you do that? And we started teaching the gym owners. Then the gym owners we were teaching were running into this ceiling where they were offering a low-value group class by low-value in $200 a month or less for CrossFit or HIT. And then we were helping them build a personal training side of their business up to more revenue and more impact than the personal training, than the other side. And their trainers didn't want to do the other work anymore because for obvious reasons, it wasn't as fulfilling. So then we built the business model for moving away from group, building the solution that people really genuinely need and value and providing it. So our flagship we're, we're launching our own flagship to show people what 100% buy into that looks like. And it actually opens next week. By the time this comes out, we'll be, we'll be up and running. Amazing. So the first thing that stood out to me is that 2004 University of Maryland, I was an undergrad at the time in College at Park. Maryland? Yeah, yeah. We were so there together. I was there 2002 to 2006. Okay. I was there 2001 to 2005. All right. There you go. So I'm I'm sure we were uh, at some of the same riots after a, a you know win over Duke or something like that. Uh, I can say so, a funny story about that uh, afterwards. It's not something people would be interested in, but it's it's funny. Okay, for sure. Um, the other thing is, you had you know you mentioned you kind of pivoted you know from the running or working at Equinox, pivoting to chiropractic, pivoting again, and then having people fly out to you from all over the world, professional athletes, games athletes, and what did you? figure out like how did that come to be because and, and i i hate the the question what's your secret because i think it's the laziest question and undermines all of the work that you've put in the hours and the education and you know it's like what's your secret to a long healthy relationship well like you know 50 years of communication and work but like mm -hmm. what did you figure out that allowed people to seek you out to say like this is where i need to go to get treatment i think most rehab clinics and most trainers in general um frankly, operate against human nature. And I was doing that. And the, when, I, when I say that, what I mean is uh, a patient doesn't want to be a patient long-term. A patient doesn't want to spend more time in your clinic and they don't want to spend more time, more money working with you, uh, not doing something else they'd rather do. Every time that they're in your clinic, they'd rather be somewhere else. Whether a clinician wants to acknowledge that or not, that's the truth. They come because they need to. They'd rather be somewhere else. One day, I just owned it. Like, they don't want to be here. They they come because they want my help, but they don't want to be here. They'd rather not need my help. So is it possible that we can help them without them needing to be here? How do we go with human nature? And at first, it was, no, I, I, we need to evaluate them, at least evaluate them. You put on the board all of the things that have to be true about a patient-doctor relationship. Then you look at what are the things that would be nice if they were true. Then you look at what are the things that are true only because they've always been true that shouldn't be anymore. And immediately when you take the what shouldn't be true anymore, you start to trim off a lot of the stuff that used to happen in a clinic. 
Then you look at what would be nice if it was true and you say, well, what must be true for that to happen? Well, there needs to be a price point for a longer visit, right? There needs to be a structure of it. So they're not just coming out and having the same traditional evaluation and treatment that everybody who comes from in town would have, who wants to be a regular or who frankly um, didn't have the training age to be able to take what we were doing online and go somewhere else with it. All of that. And then you're left with, well, okay, what if they fly out for three days? We give them a soft tissue evaluation day one, some treatment day one, um, and some gym evaluation day one. Then day two, when they come back in, we reevaluate all the findings from day one to see if the soft tissue treatment actually made a lasting impression. Then we treat again, and then we test more stuff in the gym environment. Then on day three, we reevaluate the soft tissues again, treat again if it's working or we pivot the treatment. And then we look at what we learned on day one and day two in the gym. We finish whatever testing is left. And then we provide a comprehensive report of findings and share with them how a program moving forward is going to help them. What if we did that? And, you know, put it out into the world and all of a sudden people are coming. And that must be a testament to the quality of, of service and the results that people are receiving and talking to. I think part of it was that. I think part of it was um, in 2014 when that really got started. Most, you know, I was I was hyper-focused on the CrossFit client because I owned a CrossFit gym. I owned two actually at the time uh, and the clinic. And I was working with CrossFit Games athletes, many of them. And so one of the first people who came out, I remember the first guy who came out, his name was Will. Will flew out from Nevada. I didn't think he was going to come. He asked, what does it cost? I had not even backed into the cost of a thousand bucks. He's like, okay. I'm like, damn. He said yes to a thousand. Now I, have to, I should have said 2000. Maybe you would have said, yeah. And you play that game, right? But, but then one of the things I think I was wise to at the time, even though I wasn't good at it yet, was document the process. Make sure people know somebody is flying out for an evaluation. Make sure that they know this happens. It's only happened once, but talk about when a patient flies in for evaluation, here's what we do. And I, before he even came, I was making the content and putting it online. Yeah, and I think that that touches on something that kind of goes against all marketing gurus that say, tell them, the what and the why, but leave out the how. Like, don't tell them how you do what you do. Don't give away your secret, which I have always been against. I always tell the how. I say exactly how we do what we do. The process, I get into probably too much of granular details about the process that most people don't care about. But I find that the more certainty that the client or the prospect has in exactly what they're getting themselves into, the expectations of how it all works, the more likely they are to actually follow through and be committed to the process. Well, the reason why marketing gurus, uh, to, to use your terminology, are able to do that is because they're, they're effectively preying on a market full of career-minded professionals who were never given the skills to be effective in the first place. And when I say that, I, I mean, these, these certifying bodies, and these certifying bodies allow you to get a certification, $500, $1,000, $250, whatever it is, right? And if you go on their websites right now, they're all slashed by 50 to 80% because it's Christmas. And of course, it's less valuable at Christmas time. Insanity. That certification doesn't actually provide any value to the provider except the ability to say, I'm a trainer now. That's problem number one. Problem number two is those companies tell people, this is a great certification. You're going to have a lucrative and fulfilling career using it. And then they go into the world and they're like, um, nope, I don't know how to get a client. And when I do, I frankly don't know what to do with them. So what do they do? They don't go back and say, maybe I don't have the skills. I, the company told me I had the skills. I must be good. They don't want to, no one wants to look at themselves as not being good. So now they start to look at these companies who say, we can get you clients because that's what's missing, right? I need clients. So now you have these quote unquote mentors coming into the space saying, I'm going to teach you how to get clients. We're going to tell them the the what and the why, but we're not going to tell them the how. Why not? I believe it's more pervasive than you're making it out to be. I think it's because they know that in the past when they've asked people to share the how, it wasn't compelling. 
And so the how isn't worth sharing because that's the part that when you reveal it, people have no use to work with you. It's obvious that you don't know how. And so now what happens is these people who genuinely got into the industry to help people find themselves making life decisions about, do I stay in the industry or not? Because I'm not making a living helping people the way I would like to. The way I'm being taught to make money is out of alignment with the values that I have. It just doesn't feel good. And my clients aren't getting any better, any faster. Does this stuff even work? That's what I think is actually happening in the worst case scenario. In the best case scenario, it's a scarcity-minded marketing guru who believes that if you give people all the information, they no longer have a need for you. And what I would say is that there is no information that you have, Mike, or that I have, or that any trainer out there has that can't be found on Google or DuckDuckGo. So if the thing that you're selling is information, then you're already out of business because people can get that for free anywhere. I, I One of the things that we aim to do at Active Life is give people better help for free than they would pay for somewhere else. And then when they want more than that, they can come pay us for it. Yeah. And I think that's, so let's start with, with how we bridge that gap, because I think you're illuminating a internal struggle for a lot of coaches and trainers who do get in the space for the right reasons. They want to help people. They want to make a difference. And a lot of times they think, and I've dealt with this myself with uh, helping other nutrition coaches. It's like the whole, if you build it, they will come. Well, well now I'm going to announce to the world that I'm a nutrition coach because I got certified and all these clients are going to come pay me money. Mm-hmm. And then they realize that that doesn't happen. And then what I, in my own, my own personal experience, I found that the coaches or programs who are really good at marketing are really bad at creating results. And the coaches that are really good at creating results are often really bad at marketing. And so they can get the client where they, where they need to get them, but they don't have any clients. So they're not really helping anybody. And the people that are having the, uh, you know, the line out the door to come work with us, they're usually not the best or most effective programs. Um, I think, I think, well, so the gap you're talking about is, is quality marketing, quality service. I think there are people who can do both. I I think that, um, and I think you would agree that there are outliers who are both good at marketing uh, and effective at their service who have altruistic intent, who will charge you well because they believe that's the only way that they can be effective for you. They only want to take X number of clients, not X times 10. And so they want to, they need to charge you 10 times what you would pay somebody else because you're going to be in a pool of people that's 10 times smaller than the other company would for a service that's exponentially more valuable, more than 10 times more valuable. You follow me there? So I think there are some who bridge that gap already, but the way to bridge that gap, I believe, is focusing on the quality of the service first and foremost and assuming it's not done. You know, right now, the trainer, the nutrition, whoever, whatever the profession is, I believe they're getting screwed because they're being told you're good enough and then they're seeing the market say, I'm not paying you that, which, and, and they're like, well, there's a, this does not compute there. And then what happens is there's a, there's an imposter syndrome that develops because it's like, oh man, what am I doing? I, I'm not good enough to help anybody. When that's not true, you only need to be one chapter ahead of your student to provide your student with value that they can't provide themselves. So I think the number one thing for trainers to do to become better marketers and to give better service at the same time is to rule out everybody for whom they are possible to help, but unlikely. So if someone came to you with a set of needs and you looked at your at, at your process that you take clients through and you were sitting in the witness stand in a courtroom being grilled by the counsel of the person who you're about to take on. And they're trying to find every reason why you actually can't service their client with the processes you already have. Do you want to sit in that witness stand? Are you ready to take that client? If the answer is no, keep on going until you figure out the client for whom you are ready to sit in that witness stand for. 
and only speak to them. Only speak to them in all of your content. And then figure out why am I not a fit for this other person? Oh, I need more education. I need experience. I need apprenticeship, whatever it might be. Well, do I want to be a fit for that person? Yes. Well, why? If you can answer that, great. Well, now where do you get that education, that experience, that apprenticeship? Go and get it. And the whole time that you're getting it, share with your audience what you're learning. You don't have to be there for people to want you to get there. You need to be honest with people about what you're great at right now, what you're not great at right now so that you're believable. Someone who's great at everything is great at nothing. And everybody knows that. So be honest, be vulnerable and bring people on the journey with you. I love that. It's a matter of kind of narrowing in, going deeper before we just go wide and scream to everyone, which means you're, you're basically speaking to no one. Uh, you had, you had touched on the imposter syndrome a little bit of coaches who for one reason or another, as they're on this journey, they're either being told by the market that they're not good enough, or they're being told by whoever they're interacting with on social media, that they're not good enough, or they're telling themselves that they're not good enough. Is that something that you experience? Do you experience imposter syndrome? What's your take on that? Because I think it's something that I see, it gets thrown around frequently and oftentimes used as a reason to not take action on something. Um, I had somebody actually DM DM me today and she's like, you're such an inspiration for uh, for just saying what you think and not holding back and not filtering yourself. She said, I always struggle with putting myself out there because I don't want somebody to disagree with me or I don't want to you know, ruffle any feathers and I don't want somebody to come at me with hate or anything like that. And what are you like, you know, is that something that you've dealt with? Is that something that you can speak to? Cause, cause I see it all the time and um, I have my own thoughts on imposter syndrome, but I'm curious about yours. I saw a quote that I really liked that said, uh, imposters don't have imposter syndrome. And, and what that means is the very nature that you're feeling it, like the very presence of that insecurity that you have around whatever it is that you want to be doing, that you want to be really great at, that you want to be valuable at, indicates that you are. Because the person who doesn't feel that about what they're trying to do for somebody else is completely blind to what they don't know. Where you are saying that because I'm unsure if I can help these people, I'm unsure if I'm qualified enough to help these people, but they keep coming to me. I don't know what the, I don't know why they keep coming to me. It's because you're qualified to help them. And it's because you know that if they ask you something that you don't know the answer to, you're going to say, I don't know. And I'm going to go find out. And if they ask you something that is not in your scope, you're going to refer them to somebody else. The imposter syndrome that people feel is different than the anxiety over conflict online. We need to separate those two. Imposter syndrome is the feeling that I might not be enough to help this person. And my pledge to you is that you don't have to be. You have to be prepared to become. So if somebody comes to you and says, can you help me with this? And your answer to them is yes. Then you damn well better be able to help them with that. If they come to you and say, can you help me with this? And you're not sure. And you say to them, honestly, I'm not sure. Based on what you're describing, I believe there's a good chance. But we would need to do some trial and error and pivoting for two to three months before either of us can really determine if this is a good idea to continue. Are you interested in getting started with that being on the table? Well, then all of your imposter syndrome, your fear that they're going to discover that you're not who you said you are is gone because you told them exactly who you are. Fear of conflict online is something different. Fear of conflict online is putting something out like, for example, uh, I'll give you an example of something that we've put out many times and it brings everybody out of the woodwork. If you are on a, if you're able to perform 20 front rack step-ups with a given weight, let's just call it 95 pounds on your left leg and only two reps with the same weight to the same height on your right leg. 
you should focus on unilateral strength balance before you perform another squat. We'll put something like that online. We'll get the people in the comment section. Where's your research? Prove it. Based on what? This is alarmism. You're an idiot. All of that. All of that. And my answer to them is, I don't have research for this. I have no research. I'm sure if I wanted to go find an article that supported my point, I could go find an article that supports my point. And that's why research gets twisted all the time. But I ask you, from a common sense perspective, if you can do it 20 times on your left and two times on your right, is it not reasonable that you should at least get those two things to be more balanced? What, if we told a regular layperson, this is what I found, I want to help you get these two things balanced, and you told them that's not important, who are they more likely to believe? Yeah. I don't need a research study. So you need to be comfortable that that's going to happen and, and, and be prepared to stand on your own two feet. Uh, I'll give you another brief example there. Long time ago, maybe six years, there was a podcast going around that I won't name uh, with a bunch of doctors on it who were very, very, very clinically respected deep into the research. And they actually came at me for that post exactly. And they're like, where's the research? And then they're like, you need to be able to provide research or you're yada, 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 yada. So they're like, do you want to come on the podcast and defend it? I said, absolutely. So they asked me to come on the podcast. And I said, before every podcast, we do a pre-show. And so then I listened to a few of their podcasts and I listened to how they set people up and make them look like idiots. I'm like, this is right up my alley. Like, I love this fight. So we got in the pre-podcast. And they're like, you know, this, these are the things we're going to ask you about. So you're going to want to be able to get whatever papers you have in front of you before the show. I'm like, I don't have papers. They're like, you sure you want to do that? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I said, why? I'm like, well, let me ask you a question. Do you take a shower from time to time? And the host is like, yes. What kind of a question is that? I was like, well, no, it's important because I'm curious. Why do you take a shower? And he goes, well, because I think hygiene is important. So, well, what's hygiene? He's like, cleanliness, you know, Clean, being clean. I said, okay. So do you have a research paper that proves your shower water and your soap make you cleaner than you were before you got into your shower? And he's like, no, that's ridiculous. Like, I don't think it is. If I need a research paper that suggests that my left leg and my right leg shouldn't be a thousand percent different in regards to my strength and stamina output, I don't think it's ridiculous that you should need an empirically researched study that demonstrates your soap works and your water works. And they're like, we shouldn't do this podcast. I'm like, oh, okay. No problem. And they shut you down? You never recorded it? They didn't record it. Because huh. if you listen to their podcast at the time, everything that they did was setting, there were three doctors. It was setting the person up for gotchas. And I wasn't going to be had that way. Yeah. It wasn't like that wasn't going to, I wasn't defending a study that they could pick apart and the merits of it and who funded it and all. Fuck you. Yeah. It was, it was more just trying to prove their own point versus actually having an open dialogue and being willing to change their position, um, yeah. which is unfortunate. And we see that in research all the time. I, I quote studies. I, I love looking at, you know, I, I study a lot of behavioral psychology and I'll, I'll look at fascinating studies on, the way that we we act as humans and i also notice how sometimes you can take slivers of studies and then use that and extrapolate it and say that this is what happens to everybody or you start preaching it as if there's no alternative and we forget that studies report averages and there's a lot of people that fall across the entire spectrum of results and uh you know manipulating data to prove a point i think kind of butchers the whole purpose of of being more scientific than, than dogmatic. I want to take a brief pause from this conversation with Dr. Sean Pastooch to tell you about Organifi. Organifi has been a game changer for me and my morning routine and my evening routine. And frankly, I would be lost without it. I start every morning with a little bit of lemon juice, just 
lemon and some water. That's it. That's how I start to get things moving in the morning. And then the very next thing that I do is I have some Organifi green juice, specifically the crisp apple flavor, which is delicious. And the reason for that is because it starts my day with a quality habit. It starts my day on a positive note, and it helps me to get a variety of vitamins, minerals, micronutrients, which sometimes is a struggle for me. So rather than playing the guessing game, I have my insurance policy first thing in the morning. And then in the evening, I wind down with the Organifi gold juice. Take some almond milk. Right now, I'm actually using coconut milk and I warm it up and then I use the gold juice and then uh, throw mix the gold juice in there and have a little true whip. I'm not doing the true whip right now, but that's typically what I do. Um, and it is absolutely perfect to calm the brain down to establish a quality habit at the end of your day. And that way you kind of bookend with a quality habit to start and end the day. Organifi is a brand that I've been a fan of for a very long time. They are incredible at what they do in producing quality products. I highly recommend you start with their green juice and their gold juice, but check out all of their products because they are amazing. Go to Organifi.com slash popfam to get 20% off all of their products. If you want to try their red juice, if you want to try their vegan protein powder, take a look at what the you know what they have available. You get twenty percent off all of their products with code POPFAM. So start with the green juice, crisp apple. Start with the gold juice, the chocolate flavor, and then expand from there and see what might suit your needs. You can be one hundred percent sure that it will be quality, and everything is as promised. The best ingredients, great flavor and actually delivering on what they say they're going to do, which is huge. Integrity in this space is everything. And I fully believe in the mission that they're on and glad that they're a sponsor of the show. Organifi.com slash popfam. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash P-O-P-F-A-M. Use code popfam at checkout. And now let's get back to the conversation with Dr. Sean. Yeah, the, the, the data is supposed to drive the direction. It's supposed to audit the path. It's not supposed to set it. It's not supposed to say you need to specifically do this. It's just another point along the way. They can't account for all of the variables that weren't in the study, which there are more of than there were in the study. I'll give you, I'll give you one more recent example because I think it's important for people to know this. I made a post about the difference between functional exercise and practical exercise. And a friend of mine, Pat Barber, made a 17-minute YouTube video ripping me, explaining why I was wrong about all these things. He sent it to me before he posted it. He's like, I hope you don't mind. Is it cool if I post this? I'm like, dude, I don't care if you just lie about me. You're getting me attention and not everyone's going to agree with you. Go ahead, put it online. So he did. And then in the post that he made uh, previewing it, you know, people came, all the people came and be like, you're so right. That guy's such a fool, such an idiot. What does he know? Dummy. And this one guy put in the comments, um, got a, something along the lines of, you got to love it when someone puts doctor in front of their name on Instagram just to add credibility. And then you find out he's just a chiropractor. <laughs> okay. So wait, this is useful. So like wrong, wrong tail, wrong tiger. You're not upsetting me, but you, you're, you're setting yourself up. So I wrote back to him. I said, I'm glad you wrote this comment publicly. Because it's valuable for all of the coaches in the world to see how you see them. You look down your nose at me because I am a chiropractor who put doctor in front of his name, which I, I earned, um, on my Instagram profile. You're an MD. It says MD at the end of this thing. I was like, the reason I put doctor in front of my name on Instagram, because I think it's useful for you to know is because there are rooms with people like you where decisions are being made that I don't get a sentence into without the word doctor in front of my name. But when I do have the word doctor in front of my name, you'll hear the first thing I have to say before you look up what kind of a doctor I am. And if the first thing I have to say is valuable, I get another sentence in. And if I get enough valuable sentence in, I get some influence before you find out I'm a chiropractor. And then the question you ask is usually, you learn this stuff in chiropractic school? And I say, no, of course not. But if I don't have doctor in front of my name, people like you don't even let me in the room. 
So what is every coach on this thread supposed to think about their ability to collaborate with doctors who would suggest that another doctor doesn't even have value because they don't have your degree? That and, and that conversation went on and on and on and on because I wasn't, we're going to have that conversation publicly for other people to see it. I'm not taking it personally, but so when, when you get people who give you negative commentary on social media, just remember, it's not about you. It's about them. Totally. Yeah. And that's, it's always, always the position that I try to take. Although some days it's easier than others with, with some, the extent that people will go to, to criticize and to prove themselves right and whatever else, but you, you actually alluded or you touched on uh, the, the exact direction that I wanted to go because whether you know it or not, you were actually quoted on this show before uh, mm. with the phrase practical fitness. And I said, it's going to I, immediately when I saw you post about it, I, I messaged uh, my friend JK, who he writes all of our programming for our clients. And I said, you got to see this post, Dr. Sean Pastuch. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but this phrase is brilliant. Practical fitness is going to be the next trend. And we had a whole conversation about it. And uh, so I, I mentioned on the show and I said, it was, it was really enlightening because you hear the phrase functional fitness thrown around frequently and it's open to interpretation. I think some people throw that around and don't actually know what they're saying. Uh, you obviously spent a lot of time in the CrossFit space and, and have seen, um, you know, what that modality can, can do to people if, if not properly applied. Um, when, when I kind of that whole thing just clicked when I read practical fitness, it made sense. Like mm -hmm. practically I want to be able to get down on the ground and wrestle and play tag with my kids or whatever I'm doing. I want to be able to carry the groceries in without back pain. I want to be able to, you know, I don't need to deadlift 500 pounds. I don't need to back squat two times my body weight. I need to be practically fit for life. I need to, mm -hmm. you know, I like to play tennis. I want to be able to, you know, stay active and, and be on the tennis court until like my dad plays. He's 73. I, I want to follow in his footsteps and be able to play tennis when I'm 73. To me, there's, there's a practicality that just clicks. Can we talk about where that came from, what it means to you, and then the difference between practical and functional? It started with a neighbor of mine actually giving me the term. He didn't know he was giving me the term, but he gave it to me. He, he used to do CrossFit and he told me, you know, I see this new business that you're opening in town and I'm really interested in becoming a member because I'm tired of feeling beat up after my workouts. Like I love doing the workouts. I even love the few, the hour afterwards. It's the next 48 that I don't like. And I'm constantly chasing my ass to recover, to do it all over again. So the, like, it's almost as if the whole purpose of doing it is impractical. And then he goes, I just want to have a practical level of strength to like pick my kid up. And he stopped there and I couldn't hear anything else he said after that. Cause I was on it. Right. Um, and what I, what I, what I immediately understood was he just said the thing that I have struggled to say for years, because what I am, what I've always said is that active life is not a fitness company and it's not a healthcare company. It's the bridge between fitness and healthcare, which starts to leave people thinking that you can't work with us unless you're in pain, which isn't the case. What I was trying to describe was that you can't associate us with other companies who sell fitness because they're going to sell you fitness for the sake of being fit in the gym and tell you it's to get you fitter for life. But when you ask them, how am I getting fitter for life when I take my back squat from 250 pounds to 300 pounds, they're going to come up with some nonsense about how you're building reserve strength for when you decay. How much reserve strength is appropriate? When does it become no longer a practical pursuit of strength and actually mental masturbation about being strong? That's the question that I would ask. And so I started going down that rabbit hole for myself and figuring out what are the what are the pillars, if you will, of practical fitness and why is it important that we describe it? We're opening our brick and mortar flagship down the block, 100 yards from where I'm talking to you right now. Clients are paying $150 a training session, no matter how many they buy. And the average client is enrolling with about 60 to 80 sessions as their recommendation to start. Then their monthly dues is $830 a month on top of that. 
because everything that they are getting is completely custom designed for them to meet their lifestyle, including education, exercise, and mentorship. How do we describe what's happening here without saying we're a better gym? Well, everybody has had the experience of doing fitness in a way that is impractical. Everybody has. No matter, there's 14 other group fitness businesses in our town. All of them get people fit. But for what? And everybody walks, I promise you, everybody who is a member of one of those gyms is either a perfect fit for them because they love it, or they're wondering what else could I maybe do because this isn't going to be sustainable for me long-term. We are the place where we don't care how much you squat. We don't care if you have a six-pack. We don't care how fast you can do the workout or how fast your 40-yard dashes or how high you can jump. Don't come to us if you want to be a professional athlete. Don't come to us if you want to lose 50 pounds fast. We're looking to help people achieve practical things. In order to do that, we need to understand what practical means and what practical exercise looks like. So we came up with four rules for an exercise that is more practical than another one. An exercise that includes a dynamic spine, meaning a spine in motion, is more practical than an exercise that includes a static spine. So a simple picture of that would be a deadlift is a static spine. A Jefferson curl, which is not the exercise that we're doing very often, I'm just giving it for the example here, is a dynamic spine. So here's a, here's a better example to show you how we might do something like that. A power clean includes a static spine. A squat clean includes a static spine. A landmine clean includes a dynamic spine. Landmine clean wins for practicality. The next thing is unilaterally loaded or asymmetrically loaded exercises are more practical than bilateral or symmetrically loaded exercises. So a step up is more practical than a squat. A one-arm farmer's carry is more practical than a two-arm farmer's carry is more practical than a hex bar carry. Follow? Yep. Then we go to forward is more practical than vertical. So what that means is pressing forward, moving forward is more practical than moving up. I'd rather get strong in a vector that is mostly vertical with some forward than in a purely vertical direction because life happens forward. And then the next thing is, so a landmine press again or a cable press is going to be more practical than a barbell press. Then there is compound exercises are generally going to be more practical than isolated exercises. What comes next is there's a ceiling on strength that we need to have for practical use. I'm still working on all of the metrics for that. But ultimately speaking, practical fitness is a level of fitness that allows you to make a decision about specialization. It means you have enough baseline fitness to decide to get really good at something. And if you want to get really good at something, you can. The thing that's important to know is that excellence in one area indicates deficiency in another because you put an outsized amount of effort into the one that you're excellent at. So what's practical for one person is not necessarily practical for the other if they want to pursue something that is outside the realm of everyday practicality. It makes perfect sense. How would you say that differs from functional fitness where yeah, people can, are saying like functional, it, it matters for everyday life, right? We, we mm -hmm. sit down and stand up. So yeah. you know, that's why we should be squatting and we pick things up off the ground. So that's why we should be deadlifting. So how does, how does that compare to functional fitness? The constraints. So the first thing I would say is if we watch somebody pick up a barbell on a deadlift and we watch somebody pick something up off of the floor, they're radically different exercises. They're radically different positions. Your spine is rounding when you pick something up off the floor. You're, you're rotating when you pick something up off of the floor. It doesn't, a deadlift hardly even simulates picking something up off of the floor. In fact, the most similar exercise to picking something up off of the floor, I would argue, is the starting position for a clean because that's how we pick up a heavy couch or piece of furniture with a friend. Other than that, I think those exercises are just, 
what happened was as people were evolving or devolving, however you want to look at it, exercise selection, they looked at what looks like everyday life. Oh, deadlifts look like everyday life. And then they stopped. Well, if we're really looking for the most functional version of everyday life, most practical application, pick up a sandbag. What's the point of ever having a barbell in the gym at all? If we're really looking for the thing that is the most similar to everyday life, pick up a sandbag. It's asymmetrically loaded. It's like a bag of cement. It's like a bag of dirt. It's like a person. Like It's way more like something else than, than a barbell. Pick up a plate. Pick up a heavy cut. All those things that don't have handles on them look more like real life than a barbell does. The next thing is functional exercises. So I would agree something like an air squat or even a front squat or back squat has a functionality to it. Once they get used to the point of excessive strength gain that is no longer adding practical value to everyday life, it becomes an impractical use of an otherwise functional tool. So it's like saying, how can you say a hammer isn't functional? Well, I'm trying to get a screw into the wall. A hammer is not functional for that use, right? Or... A better example, I guess, would be I'm trying to hammer this little nail, this one-inch long, really thin nail into a piece of wood precisely. Oh, grab the sledgehammer. It's still, it's a hammer, right? But that's not a practical use of that hammer. So what is the practical use of a 350-pound back squat when you already have a 300-pound back squat? Even a 200 when you already have a 150 what is that what is that doing for you and the best argument i get from people is it wards off decay so you'll be able to sit to stand longer no it doesn't because we can in our we're inarguably wearing away hyaline cartilage in the knee and what is more likely to limit somebody's range of motion in their older years is arthritis in their joints not strength in their muscles so it's not doing that either. Love it. It's super insightful. And there's there's a lot of dots that are connecting for me right now. What I'm going to leave you with a kind of like a big overarching, probably impossible question to answer. So where do we need to go in the, well, just in the fitness space, looking at gyms, looking at uh, that bridge from fitness to healthcare, starting on the front line of trainers, coaches, and then the evolution of, you know, gyms and, and facilities, where do you want to see us go over the next five, 10 years to provide a better service? If the Inward. goal is to truly help, help people, where In do we go from here? Inward. Cause the goal is not always to help people with practical things. It's, it's everybody in the industry should do the exercise that the person we talked about earlier, who has imposter syndrome should do which is put themselves in the witness stand. Are you sure you can help this person? I, I asked somebody recently, um, who, was, who is your business not a fit for? They're like, we can, we can help anybody. So anybody. So yes, yeah, so I got it. So person in a coma, you're taking them. Well, obviously not someone in a coma. Okay, well, not obviously because you said everybody. So coma, they just got out of a coma. They're in occupational therapy, relearning how to swallow, touch their fingers to each other, gain neurologically, learn how to walk, speak again. They're ready for you? No, of course not. Okay, well, someone who's a quadriplegic. No. Okay, well, what I'm getting at is if we keep going, you're going to have to say no to people who right now you're just lazy and saying everybody to. And now if we get in there and there's, there's going to be a gray zone where you say yes and I say definitely not. Definitely not. You, you only think that because you don't know what you don't know about what that person needs. Um, but that's fine. We get to the gray zone and now we can start to look at the gray zone with everything that we have on both the, the, the person who is dysfunctional in terms of their needs and the person who is highly functional in terms of their needs. You're not going to tell a hundred million dollar baseball player that you can add two miles an hour to his fastball with varied fitness, right? Like that, you better not. So there's a, there's a, there's a 
a border on either side and you got to stay within those two borders. And if you want to be able to serve other people, you need to learn how to serve those people and dedicate everything you have to it. And I think that if we, if we did that, if everybody did that, then people would be seeking education that is specifically relevant to what it is that they're trying to do for people. It would fill the holes in their game that, that are missing, not the holes that someone told them they need to fill. And then the people who are coming for service would get the service that they need and want. And the business in town wouldn't be competing over commoditized fitness because they would be able to say, what you're looking for is so cool. And we're really not that good at it. But I want you to go down the block and talk to Brendan. In fact, I'm going to call him right now. Let him know I'm sending you. I'm going to tell him everything you told me. So he's got a head start. He's going to take care of you in a way that you're going to be so inspired by. And then all of a sudden, none of the businesses in town are having to compete on price. And all of the people who are looking to join no longer have to sift through 14 people who are full of shit that say that they can help them to find the one who actually can. Therefore, just saying, it's not worth it. I'm just going to buy running shoes and go running. That's what we need to do. I've asked that question a number of times, and that's uh, the best answer I've heard. And, and it makes perfect sense. If we know who we're for and we know who we're not for, uh, it it kind of drowns out a lot of the confusion from from both client and provider. Uh, so that Our was- clients deserve it. Our clients deserve it. We, we get just as angry as fitness professionals when a medical professional just applies a pill, rest, or some, some other nonsense that is not specific to our clients' needs. We get, we get angry about that, and we should. We should offer the marketplace the same respect and not just throw our same solution at everybody. Completely agree. Um, where can everybody find you if they want to consume more of your content, learn more about what you've got going on, and uh, be privy to the, uh, to the opening next week? At Dr. Sean Pestuch on Instagram. Everything is easy to find from there. Perfect. I will make sure to get that in the show notes. And uh, I really appreciate the conversation. This was super helpful for me personally. And there's a lot of a lot of nuggets in there that I'm taking away that I'm sure the audience will as well. So I appreciate the time. My pleasure, Mike.